I suspect most of us uh, will find that there's some really nice stuff in our courses, but is it essential to facilitating the learning? You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Accelerated, part of term, AB sessions, whatever your institution calls them, these condensed format courses are becoming increasingly common in higher education throughout the U.S. and beyond. The concept here is rather straightforward. Take a traditional semester-long course and condense it into a shorter-term accelerated course that promises all the rigor of a full semester workload, but in half the time. In much the same way that online education has been a boon for learners with competing demands in their life, shorter terms are yet another attractive consideration for those looking to fast-track their progress towards their learning goals. Opinions, and there are many, vary from one extreme to the other. However, when looking at the data, accelerated courses do appear to offer considerable benefits for students and, by extension, to the institution as well. Case in point, Odessa Community College in Odessa, Texas has unwittingly become the poster child success story regarding accelerated course formats. By 2017, Odessa CC reimagined the traditional 16-week term for more than 80% of their courses. Two years after introducing eight-week courses, Odessa CC saw a 13% increase in enrollment, a 26% increase in FTIC enrollment, a 2% increase in course completion, an 8% increase in C or better success, and a 27% decrease in return of federal funds for non-completion. And within a five-year period, they had improved their transfer graduation rate from 15% These are impressive numbers to be sure, so much so that Odessa College was awarded $150,000 by the Aspen Institute as its rising star college. Of course, there are challenges to be considered. Compressing a course does increase the workload for both students and faculty in the short term. Students are essentially signing up for double the workload per week, which can be especially daunting for incoming students who have yet to develop time management skills. Faculty, as well, should expect faster grading turnaround in order to give timely feedback, frequent course-wide announcements to keep everyone on track, and timely outreach to students who may be falling through the cracks. Again, though, this is short-term. Then, There is the considerable skepticism many faculty feel at what may appear to be yet another fad sweeping through higher education. They may feel that they are forced to adopt this new accelerated format at the risk of job security and with a tragic loss to academic integrity and rigor. There are a lot of possible questions to dive into here, such as how can colleges incentivize faculty to convert their courses into a new format? What kind of professional development is needed to support faculty in gaining the conceptual knowledge needed to convert and facilitate accelerated courses? And how can academic advisors be ready to guide students through condensed programs while taking precautions to help them avoid burnout? 
These are all great questions. However, we're a panel of instructional designers, after all, and therefore this episode will focus on the practical aspects of condensing a course, such as what can faculty expect when facilitating a short-term course? Can academic rigor be maintained regardless of semester length? Is it possible to create a community of learning in such a short period of time? These topics and more will be discussed, but first, welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft, Senior Instructional Designer from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Jeanette Senegal, Celia Katraitiwa, and we have a special guest joining us today. <laughs> I am so excited to uh, be amongst this great team and a part of today's podcast. My name is Dr. Karen Sayward, and I'm a clinical professor uh, here at Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation at Arizona State University. Thank you, Karen. So Jeanette and Celia, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with accelerated course formats? So I'm actually going to go from the student perspective of the accelerated course. My master's program was all um, eight-week sessions. Uh, so it was very quick to the point. The content had very little extra fluff in there, but the instructors were still able to organize the content in, a, in an effective, engaging way. And so we did, you know, of course, a lot of discussion boards. Um, most of them were post and cite and then reply. Um, but there were some open discussion forms that we were able to use and we were able to build somewhat of a community amongst those forums. Uh, most of the assessments that we had were project-based, we did action research um, because at that time in that program, most of us were still in the classroom. So we were able to um, do some of those action research projects. And then also, of course, a lot of essay writing. So the assessments were very similar in a majority of the courses that I was taking. But again, this was, this was a program based on curriculum and instructions. Jeanette? I love that you started with the student perspective because I actually have not uh, ever taken a compressed format course as a student. It's really interesting to kind of think through how, like, how would my master's program have looked different and how would I have reacted differently if it were in a compressed seven and a half or eight week format? Um, I don't know. I, I think that I really enjoy time for reflection in between projects and having that opportunity to kind of digest things. So I think it would be very challenging for me temperamentally, but... We'll never know. On the other side of it, uh, I certainly have helped a couple of programs that were, let's say, required to move to a compressed format, and they had previously been teaching in a hybrid modality in the full semester style. So it was it was challenging on both fronts, changing a modality and a delivery model, as well as compressing the timeline. And there, I think it's fair to say there was some friction in their understanding around why they were basically compelled to do the work, how to complete the work. And it really took some some thoughtful negotiation with, with every instructor, every course to, you know, not, not so much identify fluff, but really rethink how they could stack the timelines of the students' learning experiences in a way that was achievable and still uh, was honest to the uh, learning outcomes. 
On the facilitation side, I pretty regularly teach a seven and a half week format course. I didn't necessarily design and develop, um, but it is a very well-developed course. And I do find that the biggest challenge is really those first, you know, week to week and a half. The primary time budget is just communications with students, making sure everybody's on their way, checking in with the occasional student who hasn't started the course in the time that they should have and so you really have a very different role in that very first part of the course that later then transitions into more of the providing feedback and guiding the learning process so your your role as an instructor as you understand it really can shift quite a bit because things move so fast it's so easy for you to lose people along the way and we have karen joining us because she has experienced teaching a condensed course format Karen, can you tell us a little bit about your course before and after the conversion? Well, I have to say it's it's courses. It's intriguing to me to reflect back on that if we had done this podcast um, a year ago, what my lived experience might have been compared to today. So what was initially tackling one course has become multiple courses, uh, not only in redesigning the course from 15 week to seven and a half week, but also teaching within that format and getting under my belt at least one round of teaching in the condensed format and also what I learned. So I think it's back to my courses are in the Master of Science in Nursing program here at Edson. The courses themselves previously all taught in a uh, 15-week format, in particular the topics at hand. One course is an interprofessional collaboration for patient safety and healthcare quality. The second course, and I want to say the most challenging, both to convert and teach, is a nurse uh, course in our nurse educator track, which is curriculum development. On top of that, it became a challenge of, uh, as I go into uh, yet another uh, challenging conversion, is to look at doing the same for a um, capstone uh, uh, course within the Master of Science in Nursing program for the applied project. And that's uh, on the horizon this, the end of the semester, and I'll be teaching that this summer. So... That's my kaleidoscope of, of courses. I feel like I'm forgetting a course. Um, and so I'm kind of counting them off in my head because I'm doing a juggling act in a big way this semester. So I think I have it. I think I have it covered. And these are all fully online courses that you've described, Karen? Yes. Uh, reflective of a recent decision to within Edson and the program to take the program fully online. So it's fair to say that these courses always had a hybrid feel to them, um, certainly in my delivery of them, and have always been based in a learning management system. It was the time frame that was the, the change that prompted um, new and exciting thinking. I'm sure I say did. that affectionately now. I didn't say it affectionately <laughs> then. Oh, well, that's exactly what I want to dive into. And just for a little bit of context, ASU runs a full semester course for 15 weeks and a condensed course at seven and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And that seven and a half weeks feels like seven at best. It really goes fast. 
Exactly. It does go fast. What was your process for converting a 15-week course to a seven and a half week course? How did you approach it? Well, actually, I think one of the first steps I took was having conversations with instructional designers and you all. I think that I have had a close working rapport and relationship with instructional designers here. So, um, of course, that may have taken more of the form of my expressing my angst and my concerns about you want me to do what? Also, I, I call it when, when faculty become very faculty centric and we hold on to our sacred cows and, and how we believe that how we're doing it is the one and only way we can. And so you can be as open-minded a faculty member um, as you, you think you are, and then you're asked to tap into that open-mindedness um, and do something very different. And so I think part of it was initially dealing with some of the um, concerns, anxieties about how in the heck am I going to do this? And how, um, maybe more importantly, uh, the question for me was, how can I assure through my processes of design that learning is going to occur at the same level and with the same quality I believed them to have been when I had more time with the students and the students had more time, not necessarily with me, but immersed in the content, immersed in the learning um, and all that goes with that through those opportunities that uh, sometimes time is a gift. And uh, when, when that gift of time uh, is removed, you know, what is the re-gifting that occurs? Can I just say, I love that you're talking about the mindset and the thought processes first, rather than just, I did this and I, you know, talked to this person and, you know, this was the checklist. Like, I think that's something that we don't talk about enough, that reaction, that, that thought space you need to be in to do this kind of work. So I really appreciate you starting there. Well, thank you, Jeanette. I think it comes out, uh, the genesis of it is often when I'm asked, especially teaching in the nurse educator program, what my philosophy of teaching is. And uh, from the onset of my academic career has been one of presence, and engagement, interaction, availability, uh, relationship. And so um, those, those words are um, you know, always swimming around in my head in terms of uh, part of this was how will I um, uh, create that reciprocal presence, um, reciprocal relationship, uh, reciprocal um, engagement, um, and all the things that I listed, because it's not just me engaging with the students, it's the students engaging with me and the course, uh, the living course, and that's how I view it. Were you comfortable at where you were at with your full-length semester course, with your 15-week course, in terms of your presence, in terms of the reciprocal engagement? Do you feel like you had uh, achieved what you wanted to there before you converted? Well, the, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question, Erin, because I think part of it is I've been teaching the interprofessional collaboration course for a while, so that uh, I felt pretty much in, my, in the groove you know, with that. 
uh, was a little different experience with the uh, nursing curriculum course because it was new. It was, it was a new course to come on my teaching load. I have been wanting to teach it, you know, for a long time. And so it was, it was truly something I was looking forward to, but I didn't have as much experience behind me. So not only was I, I had already experienced with the nursing curriculum course, taking a course as it had been taught and doing some redesign and work prior to my teaching it. So it, it, it in and of itself had been in a pipeline of uh, reformulation, redesign and all of that. So I was getting into you know, the, the rhythm of that course. I, um, I think what it, part of what it was and, and the thought that came to mind when you asked that Erin, was that that lovely tool uh, that we've all come to love, Zoom, and the ability to connect with our learners uh, through the Zoom environment and to create synchronous opportunities to engage, have relationship, interact, be available, have a presence with our students, not in a steady dose that is normally a company seeing students in the classroom, you know, when you're, you know, every week, but frequently enough to feel that uh, I see you and, and they see me. It was as if that arm got tied behind my back and, and not in a painful way, but one of the tools I had grown comfortable with in my toolkit, I felt it was taken off the shelf for me. So the question was, how am I going to accomplish all those uh, facets, not just not just in the curriculum course, but the feel of the course, the art of the course? How would I how how was I going to approach that in a different way without using that tool? Yeah, that's curious because this is a what I from what I can tell a very common story is that. Uh, you're going about your business. Everything seems okay. You're plotting away at your uh, workload. And then you, are, you were asked, you were told, you were voluntold that you were going to teach a seven and a half week format. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, a, a programmatic decision. And, and so it goes. The direction that the college was taking, programs were taking, um, not only the online environment, but also in looking at those aspects that you brought up earlier in terms of uh, bringing in uh, students, increasing enrollment. It certainly, for example, has ta- changed who my learners are, where they live. Really? Um, currently, I have a student in Alaska, another in South Carolina, another in Michigan. It has opened up uh, an avenue for a diversity of learners geographically that we didn't have before. I get the direction higher education in, in, is going in terms of strategies to reach uh, the diverse learner, the geographically dispersed learner and that. And so part of it is once again, I think getting challenging oneself as a faculty member, as an educator to uh, not be so education ed- educator centric in terms of these are my biases, these are my preferences. Um, this is the way I think it needs to happen. I can't teach in any other way. And you have to find a willingness within self to uh, set that aside. It, that gremlin comes out. I can tell you that, you know, that gremlin comes out to play, you know, through the process uh, and, and, and quite honestly, some of the frustrations of 
trying to accomplish this goal of 15 to seven and a half weeks. But it's a, it's a process. As a developmental evaluation person who believes in that, it believes in we can make anything look good on paper. We can make anything look brilliant in Canvas. And it's the test of doing it and uh, applying it and quite honestly then refining it because in many cases for example that a curriculum development course in particular that the first time i did it in seven and a half weeks at the end of it i said i can't do it that way again and i have to make yet more adjustments um, because i didn't reach that threshold of availability presence etc um, so I needed to continue to my effort and I'm in that next test of delivering the course four weeks in of the seven and a half week course, having made some changes and I'm living it. So what strategies would you say you used in thinking about the content part of everything and in condensing the course? Rule of thumb for me is uh, looking at what is being taught. We, ha- we need to deliver on the learning outcomes. And so in the, in the scope and breadth of looking at what we're saying, these are learning outcomes for this course, looking at the content and saying what is essential and what is just nice. I suspect most of us uh, will find that there's some really nice stuff in our course courses. Um, maybe because it's a a pet topic or a pet type of activity, but is it essential to facilitating the learning for the student, you know, of the student, giving the student the learning opportunities uh, by which they can successfully uh, achieve those course learning outcomes in seven and a half weeks. And so it is, I think some of it is um, a weeding process of, of um, what can't possibly be taken out and what can be taken out in the course and the learners and you as a faculty will survive. It's very common that these um, condensed formats, when they're converted from a full-length semester to say a half semester, that noise, quote unquote, needs to be reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, supplemental materials need to be identified and marked as such and alignment needs to be very strong between the outcomes, the learning materials, the activities, and the assessments. That needs to be tighter than ever, whereas you might have a little more leeway in a 15-week course. That's what it sounds like you're saying, that you had to basically look at everything again, decide what was noise, and um, parse that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, turn down the noise, turn down the volume of that. I think we can make 15-week courses into year-long courses, I mean, if we wanted to. (laughs) Go the other way. It's where we think that that saying that goes... I'm learning um, in my academic writing and other arenas of academic life that less and more isn't better, necessarily better. And so uh, can less be more if it's based on how it comes together and it's, it's, uh, it's a lesser quality form, but it gets that process and, and how you structure and so that is, you know, one of the, you know, the strategies. Um, I'm a creature of alignment. My, my mind, uh, my, my mental process is one looking at what, whatever content that I'm being asked to look at in course design and making sure that I can make those connections 
now it's not possible within the podcast to to share um, you know how I actualize that in my courses but I also make that really evident to my students and that it goes into a very um, personal signature I was just talking about I'm mentoring a nurse educator student we were talking about um, uh, my the way I go about course design and the use of color coding and how a how I can map course themes throughout the course. And I was asked by the student why I did that. And I think it has to do with the, it's not only transparent to me, it's transparent to the student. And should someone else next semester step into the course and teach it, it's evident to anybody else that, you know, this connects with this in a learning activity, connects with this in an assessment um, activity so that you're able to lean it up. And if stuff falls off to the side, say, well, I don't know where to put this, it's, it's probably an indication that it has no place to be. If it cannot, uh, I don't want to say conform because I don't think it's that rigid. Um, if it cannot flow within those alignments, which guide the student in their learning to the end of the course and hopefully uh, achieving the learning outcomes. I think that transparency component is so important. It's something that we've certainly spoken to in other episodes. Um, and even so far as to recommend looking into the TILT, T-I-L-T, transparency in learning and teaching model, because it provides a, a fairly simplified framework that I think really lends itself to uh, an accelerated course format to ensure that instructors and developers are making that very apparent to students and, and giving them those, those goalposts to um, orient themselves as they're moving through a very fast-paced learning experience. The article, Jeanette, that you had us read, one of the sentences that stood out to me had to do with being clear on expectations that uh, our current learners need, need it and need clarity and expectations. And that was uh, something that popped out to me from that, from that article. And I think part of it is in, in under the umbrella or the embrace of, act, of rigor and the quality of the teaching and learning experience is clarity of expectations. Part of this is it's moving fast uh, so it's even more important, for example, and I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but when you taught in the classroom and students showed up, you know, once a week or sometimes twice a week, and you did that for 15 weeks in an academic semester, a student might have a question about a particular assignment and, um, and there might be less uh, intensive need for an immediate answer. And, and so again, that is another process within all the processes that needs attention too, is that making sure that you know, upfront to the best of one's ability, one has anticipated uh, the likely questions and concerns that the learner audience would have. And then once in the course, you're gonna find that there's something you overlooked and the next time you teach the course, you'll remember to include that. But whether it's deadlines, whether it's um, format, all the attributes of, of maybe the assignments or the tools that you're going to use so that hopefully you can reduce the number of, quote, surprises, unquote, 
for for the student, um, and they don't have that. I'll I'll ask Dr. Sayward um, next week uh, how to explain that to me. Well, the, the that time frame again of seven and a half weeks introduces an immediacy of resolution of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once again, depending on how you've designed the course, how available and how responsive can, can you and will you be to the student uh, when they have those questions that are, from their perspective, very important. And, and when, you, when I receive those questions, they are important. You know, and, and uh, so treating all those kind of questions as important. There are so many, uh, I'm struck with in this conversation, there's so many, it's like like the Russian dolls and I use this uh, in my teaching too. There are the lessons within the lessons, you know, the plays within the plays. <laughs> and, um, and so um, there's surface conversion of our courses. What I said earlier about it looks good from the outside. It looks good in the Canvas course shell, but it's really in the in- innards. It's in, it's in the innards. And it's in the keen work that all of you do as instructional designers, because you're looking at the innards uh, with us and helping us. And it's been my experience helping us with stretching our creativity to doing what at at some moments feels like impossible to um, making it possible and being successful. You know, earlier when we first started the conversation, you mentioned that it goes quickly. The, the eight-week courses, or sorry, the seven-and-a-half-week courses go very quickly. And now you're talking about having clarity of expectation, reducing surprises. And to me, what this, uh, how I would say it is reducing barriers to access of, of educational materials to learning. When you're, desi- when you're course designing a condensed course, there can be no surprises, no, as few barriers as possible, because you don't want the students to focus on trying to access the material or have these questions that they can't get answered. You want them to be able to hit the ground running be in the material. Celia, you had asked, you know, other, other strategies, you know, uh, one that is different and new for me, and it focuses on the nursing curriculum development course, was that was the course I was the most concerned about. It related to one of the assignments. Assignment still sticks. <laughs> it's still in place. But it is uh, the assignment has to do with developing a curriculum development project, which is has many components and is part of the uh, application of learning and assessment of learning uh, what the course is about. Anyone that's done curriculum development knows that it doesn't happen at the speed of light. And so a reframing strategy from one of what can what might one be able to do in a 15 week period of time where you have a lot more time for for reflection and and, and massaging and, and playing around with this curriculum design uh, and what can you accomplish in seven and a half weeks well the first conversion idea on paper you know, this was was oh, it's how how will how, will i be able to retain that assignment which has uh, been identified by students as as daunting, but an effective learning process for them. And what can, or what of that project can be accomplished in seven and a half weeks? First time teaching the course, I certainly made the students aware that this project was on the horizon. However, at that 
at, during that semester, I didn't engage the students in actually working on it till halfway through the course. And when we talk halfway through the course, we're talking about three and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a ride. <laughs> Week uh, four, five, and six, seven, you know, were quite a ride. Even though I had used a strategy by making available an asynchronous collaboration space for each student privately with me. Um, we each had our, our folder in Google Drive. And so I had a collaboration space within which to work with a student. And if they were writing at two in the morning and if I were reviewing at four in the morning, um, it, it honored the online tradition of not requiring synchronous um, connection, uh, but it gave me an opportunity to extend myself. In, a, in an instructional way so that I could do coaching. And again, back to honoring my desire for presence and engagement and relationship and interaction. Um, so this semester, I started the course <laughs> with the question, uh, uh, one of the questions beyond, you know, who are you? And, um, and getting, getting the ball rolling in the course is uh, already, asking the students to identify a topic for the curriculum project. And instead of waiting to midway through the course, um, I created all of those collaboration space connections in Google Drive for the students from day one. And so although they've been involved in other things in the earlier modules, which are essential to be able to do the project, we are already engaged in interaction as they uh, are playing around with what would my topic be, um, why is this important to do, and, uh, and through a very scaffolded process. That's another strategy is uh, of making expectations clear, is uh, having lassoed some creativity in creating a scaffolded project template which is, is teaching within the teaching um, and guiding these students along very formatively uh, towards more the summative end of their, their project. I think I, I, I muttered the words being focused very much on developmental evaluation, and so, and, but I don't think I said much after that. I think the, the message out of developmental evaluation of a program, of your own work, is that you cannot be rigidly set on that target that I said I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it exactly this way, that that trajectory of outcome um, has detours and one needs to let some things go for other things to come in. Karen, is that a constraint in general for you or was that a constraint because of the condensed format? I think, I think the, the response is it's going to be as unique as the faculty member is. And I said that I, I personally realized I could not afford that rigid trajectory you know i i knew in advance and back to jeanette's comment about mindset getting being ready a state of readiness for doing this um because everything we do you know if i'm awkward about it if i'm unsettled about it uh, my learners are going to be unsettled about it and i i guess not wanting to taint um, with that. So I, I guess the rigidity, it's also knowing enough that I'm, as an individual, I, I with my um, perfectionistic uh, tendencies and uh, my sense of, of organization and such, it's easy 
to fall into a, a way of thinking you have to stay with coloring within the lines. And this is freedom, in, in, if you will. And again, my, my response to my experience has been very much shaped from the last year. And as I said early in the podcast that how I might have responded a year ago and how I'm responding today, mm-hmm. um, I believe is, is different and is reflective of, of, of changes I made. You know, you look at, I looked at the tight, I'm looking at the title um, of our conversation today of all rigor half the time that captures certainly what the intent would be for the student, but it's an important message uh, and a banner, I think, for the faculty member too, that it, it is all the same rigor in half the time, but half the time is also an element of acceleration as has already been mentioned, for the faculty member, um, faculty member, you know, in terms of response time, evaluation response time. Um, uh, I've had a number of students be surprised that I respond so quickly <laughs> to their discussion posts or our community discussion posts for, for questions about the course or in the e-messaging in, in Canvas, mm-hmm. uh, because I realize they're sitting there chomping at the bit to get an answer to move mm-hmm. them forward. It, it tests the metal of what, how available one is willing to make oneself be when teaching in these intensives and, te- and teaching in line in general, but how available can you be? How responsive can you be? And you don't have three weeks to turn around the assignment. You know, why do we assign, why do we provide feedback if we don't want it to be considered and used in the subsequent assignment? So I think there's a lot of time pressure on the faculty, not just on the design end, but um, on the operational end of the course that the students are out of breath at the end of the course. And Mm -hmm. so am I. Jeanette, you're, you have a similar experience? Yeah, I was just going to say that in um, facilitating an introductory level seven and a half week online course, um, I really have had to internalize the need for a bigger communication time budget and facilitation time budget. And it's not about building curriculum. It's not about deploying learning experiences. It's literally that first week spending a much more significant piece of time getting to know the students and building individual pathways of communication, checking and following up for those who haven't started the course on the timeline that they really need to in order to be able to progress in that first week. And it is extremely intensive. It's draining to some extent because you feel like you're spending so much time doing things other than teaching and learning. But if you don't, chances are good that you're, you know, that student who may have been successful, but just didn't know how to reach out and get the help that they needed, they do get lost and they do get shuffled aside. And that's a missed opportunity that, you know, that hurts, that hurts them. And it doesn't deliver on our, our commitment, I think, to, to making sure that everyone can be successful. Jeanette, as, as I was listening to you, I think what uh, I jotted down the words educational climate. I think this speak, I think he just, just so brilliantly spoke to our responsibility in teaching and learning for, uh, it's like classroom management mm-hmm. in the cloud and assuring that environment is secure. What we're talking about here for me is, this is basically instructor presence. This is conveying yourself. How do you 
relay yourself? How do you convey your presence? Mm-hmm. Karen, do you feel like you were able to promote instructor presence and build community within these condensed courses? And you taught, you're teaching several different subjects. So were you able to bring that same amount of presence to all the condensed courses? Or do you find that some subject matters aren't quite as good a fit as others? Well, you know, I'm really having this, this moment of thinking that we're talking about uh, doing this seven and a half week teaching. And I'm, I'm very focused on my values and teaching and my philosophy of teaching as instructional designers. Um, you are likely working with faculty that have an assortment and different approaches to teaching. And so the things that I'm emphasizing here in our conversation might be um, not on the forefront of that course conversion. I think that's part of the, you know, uh, how I teach. Part of that is is something I bring personally to the table. Now to your question, um, Aaron, um, and then I'd love to hear from all of you on, on what I threw out there is that the nature of my content. I teach a course on interprofessional collaboration. And I cannot imagine teaching a course that emphasizes collaboration without collaborating. And it's not just collaborating with me. I have to create opportunity for collaboration amongst the learners so that to the best of our ability, we can create some sense of learning community. And the richness in that exchange um, and my facilitating it is important. Um, In the curriculum development content, um, I'm, I'm not teaching math. I'm teaching about a process that doesn't happen in isolation from conversation with other educators. Or if it does, um, we talk about the the downside of siloing one's work when developing a curriculum, which essentially belongs to the faculty. So, you know, how do I replicate a, what is a dynamic, interactive, iterative process without trying to, uh, or finding a way to um, give a flavor of that, uh, certainly not the intensity of it, but to provide a flavor for it within the course. So it's just, it's, I think, given the content I teach, I think it's, it's critically important. Would there be another topic I might teach where I may feel differently about that? I guess if that's anything, anything's possible. That's quite an accomplishment, though, from the many faculty that I've spoken to about having to convert their courses. I think one of the biggest concerns they have generally is that they cannot build community in such a short time. So can I turn the tables and ask the three of you, um, how do you deal with the kaleidoscope of all of us coming to you, possibly in a time of panic, saying, I need to convert this course from 15 weeks to seven and a half weeks. Can you help me? Can I throw in a little plug really quick on what you just uh, touched on as far as the learning tools? and your implementation of them. Um, I feel like that in itself is one of the strategies that you used in being very cognizant of what type of tool you're using and how it will benefit the course, benefit you versus just throwing all these tools because they look pretty. So I just wanted to kind of point that out that you know that's one of the other pieces is being very mindful of every every element that you add to these condensed courses to make sure that they are going to be effective and essential in themselves. Mm -hmm. 
That's a good point. From my perspective, this entry into the large project of conversion, it's as you stated, going back to the learning outcomes, we hammer this over and over again. This is our this is our world as instructional designers, but really taking a look at what is supposed to happen by the end of a learning experience and how that aligns and then considering building out a checklist. What is feasible? What is the pacing and the rhythm look like between the materials and collaboration components that students are going to be working with up against the assessments and evaluative processes that need to occur in order to measure and capture those outcomes and plugging it in because really building it out into a learning management system that is the easiest part that's this silly you know we're, we're putting it in a place where it's accessible to students it's not the pedagogy it's not the development of it really so spend the time there don't worry so much about the shiny stuff and the lovely stuff until you have the rest of it worked out and you know what checklists on paper with a pen and dividing up the tasks it's really powerful and effective i think in in any large project just to break it down into the pieces so oh yeah for sure uh, i just go back to the basics alignment make sure your activities align reduce the noise because as jessica cole a former colleague of ours once said you cannot cram it all in in half the time. <laughs> things will get cut. It might just be a slight haircut. It might be a shave, but things will get cut. However, and I think what I suggest to faculty when they when they talk to me about condensing courses is the one thing the one thing I focus on is the one thing I think Karen is excelling at, and that's student communication. Learn your communication tools in Canvas. Uh, well, we use Canvas here at ASU, but whatever LMS you're using, whatever platform you're using. Understand your communication tools and you need to communicate regularly. Send an announcement at the beginning of the week, send another one at the end of the week. Reach out to students who are falling through the cracks by day two, maybe no longer than day three, yeah. and understand how you can create uh, a relationship via the digital platform. Because even if the course is automated, say it's a math course and you just have the tests open up on, on a certain day and they close on a certain day and everything is just, it's just, it's already automated. The students are gonna have a lot of anxiety. They already have a lot of anxiety coming into an online course. And then they're gonna have even more anxiety because it's a, it's a condensed format. If you can communicate, let them know that you're a real person, that they can reach you when they need you. If you can convey that presence and that immediacy then you're going to reduce a lot of the anxiety and the rest of it you'll figure out along the way. That would be my, my take. And I would suggest that if you find yourself in the position of teaching a on-site, in-person or hybrid compressed seven and a half or eight week course, that's no less important because yes, you may be seeing them once a week or every other week, uh, but being able to facilitate the communications in between in an efficient way, using your learning management system, using your roster email, whatever, but continuing that interpersonal relationship building, it's just as important as if you're teaching a fully online course. Your comments make me uh, think of a phrase we're probably all familiar with. It's management by walking around. And, and so how do you translate that walking around? I know my teaching behaviors in the classroom are one of not standing at the front of the room. I am walking the room and uh, walking around and moving. So how do you, how do you, um, it has nothing to do with converting to seven and a half weeks, but it's, yeah, what do we call these, these, these things you need to think about, you know, how do you, how can that 
be present. You know, one is making an assumption that it's meaningful to the students. So far, the test of time suggests it is, at least for my students and their response to, um, to what has been created. Um, but how do you create that? Tools, uh, Celia, you mentioned. Uh, so I started thinking about the first adventure in uh, working towards creating those bridges to communication was I said, I said, I can't have, I uh, can't have synchronous Zoom, <laughs> can't have synchronous Zoom. And so how, what am I going to do? What's my alternative? So then it became the chat room and I set my open office hours to chat room and I would make sure I was there and I would do a kind signed in say I'm here. And, uh, and I, um, more often than not, no one would come. Um, but then I'd sign off and said, um, I'll be, I'll be here so-and-so, you know, next time, see you next time uh, type thing. And then I had an interesting conversation with a colleague who mentioned that they use that same headset or mindset, but they have open office hours on Zoom. And I thought, I have to try that. I have to try that. So for all, uh, all three of my courses, uh, I teach a practicum course that is online, full, that's a whole other podcast, I think, doing practicum courses online um, over 15 weeks, because uh, what the, it implies in terms of a clinical practice course. Uh, however, I, 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 I digress. Um, the idea of I have office hours set up at predictable times. I'm, I'm dealing with multiple time zones. Uh, so I've kind of looked at it, you know, what would be reasonable, you know, that I'm not expecting somebody to drop in at one in the morning, you know, type of thing, but I, I set them their standard and whether anyone shows up or not, I'm there. <laughs> and, and I've had, uh, I have to say on one of the courses, I've had one drop in after the Zoom session ended and I got an email from the student say, is this, is the, are your open office hours still open? And so I reopened the Zoom to, to accomplish it. It was just for like 10 minutes after the close of the hour that I had set up. So I think, um, you know, again, that's a change in tool and my comfort in using it. Something that I'm, I'm really excited about using this semester is I discovered, you know, emojis, an emoji maker. And so I have little emojis images. Uh, of me and and it does capture in part for those that can't see me I, I wear my hair rather spiky um, and uh, it captures me in, in an emoji and uh, so I have used them uh, for example in an announcement um, it's it's a replication of me if you will but like my welcoming emoji there's there's an emoji of me saying welcome and so I've inserted those images into my uh, my communications with students through the announcements and that if they are um, they've done a stellar job on a discussion forum as a learning community you know I have the hand clap you know emoji um, trying not to overdo it but enough that it it gives them a visual connection in my communication to them that I see you um, and I am here they are fun, but there's actually quite a bit of research on the the social presence and, you know, sort of the surrogacy, if you will, of avatars, even if that's just an emoji characterization, but the sort of intimacy that you can build in your communication patterns with individuals that you don't know well. So all fun and maybe 
one might presume a bit fluffy. There's actually, there's quite a bit of psychology behind that. So thank you, Jeanette, for making what I just said about emojis sound so evidence-based. <laughs> I appreciate that frame. So thank you very much. Um, the frame I don't like are the videos. There's not one single video of me talking in any of these courses. And so my challenge became, that's not a challenge, is that how can I talk and have conversation with my learners? And so um, my courses look, look different from those that have been converted that have used the video technology to do mini lectures, if you will. And I do it differently. And There's I haven't your... done that yet. There's your homework for the year, Karen. Go become a TikTok producer. Get all of your your fun <laughs> dances lined up. You know, some some rhythm. I mean, I can totally see you doing this. So, oh heavens, <laughs> heavens, heavens, heavens! Um, if, I think that's a no. <laughs> well, you know, I I'll tell you what. If, if if you can figure out the the speaker issue in my office, I might uh, at least entertain the idea. Of, of, of taking risk. So there, there's one thing, one more thing I want to talk about. Karen mentioned risk. How do we identify students who are at risk and how do you intervene in a condensed format? Because as Karen said, these classes go by quickly. Uh, intervention and catching at risk students is absolutely critical. Karen, has this been ever an issue in, in any of your courses? Well, yes. I mean, it's the absence. You, you feel the absence. You see the absence of a student. Um, and I think, Jeanette, I guess I'm pausing because, Jeanette, you know, I think you spoke to it, too. It's, it's something right out of the gate. You know, <laughs> did the students get registered? Are they in the course? Um, and, and so some of them are more urgent than others. You know, the creating the collaboration space, the Google folder. First time I did that, I didn't ask for a confirmation from the student that they actually got into it and accessed it. And so I was chasing down students to ask that question, made for a lot of extra work. This round, they send me a confirmatory note <laughs> that lets me know they're in. And so I haven't had to chase you know, my students to do that. Then there's the student that doesn't have a presence or is absent and you do have to intervene and you can't wait. And I think Jeanette, that was, you know, to your point, we can't wait. And I famously send out care e-messages. Say we're care e-messages. That's what, what's in the subject line. And I just will check in on the students and say, um, you know, just checking in on things. And, and amazingly, sometimes I find 10 paragraphs later, what's going on <laughs> in the student's life that um, reasonably kept them from um, being more responsive, uh, meeting a deadline. Uh, so you have to, like you read a room, you need to read the room. <laughs> it's back to reading the room in the cloud. Be, be able to position yourself reduce your noise as a, as a fact, as an educator to hear what you're seeing, the patterns and, and what you're seeing from individual students or the, quite honestly, the group as a whole, you know, where there's a, a delay or a pause or they really don't get this. I use a very different uh, format for discussion forums in terms of academic reflection and writing and um, and when first introduced to the students I expect they're going to stumble all over the place with it in the first so I put e extra energy into 
um, monitoring how they're doing and sending additional explanatory guidelines or explanations or examples by the second discussion board to get it and that's reinforced and I, again I use it formatively. You're talking about a hallmark of excellence in teaching. You're showing concern rather than judgment or or some sort of punitive exchange because you're much more likely if you do have a student who's struggling for whatever reason to hopefully engage them in some way and direct them to whatever they need to progress. And you know, there are always going to be some students who it's beyond what they can handle and they end up leaving the course or whatever. But I think you can rest comfortably knowing that you've done what you can and you've made the good faith effort. And just to sort of follow up on your comments around the how, the LMS component, mm -hmm. not to give our robot overlords any more uh, power than they deserve, but <laughs> truly our modern LMS systems are rich with data and analytics around what's going on in a course. So particularly if you're in a fully online course and, you know, it's a, you know, even introductory level where students are doing a lot of small tasks the first week, you can very accurately assess, are they looking at pages? Are they opening documents? Are they, you know, navigating around the elements of the course that they need to in that first few days? And even if that means that for time's sake, you are on day two sending out a pre-formatted message, hey, I noticed you haven't signed in yet. Don't forget this moves really fast. You, you may be surprised from time to time when you pick up those stragglers who just didn't realize that they needed to really get on it. You know, I've had that experience. I had a student who was one of my best students ever at the end of the course say, man, I, I just, I always put stuff off because usually I can get through it really easily and readily. But when you contacted me on day two and forced me to take a look at the deliverables for the first week, I realized I was in an entirely different situation and I needed to get going. So it's heartening to hear that those interventions, even though somewhat scripted, they can have an impact. So how, how far off the topic did we get, Aaron? We are not off topic at all. <laughs> I, I actually had one more question just to cap everything off. Karen, when does the first eCare message go out? I tell faculty, if by day two you don't hear anything, you need to reach out. Um, when I look at the fact that the uh, at the very beginning of the course that I can tell from looking at just the drop down list of students that two students haven't even signed in and spent any time in the course. Again, it's not a game of gotcha of, of I noticed you haven't signed into the course and it's a that care message might at that time for those students, two students, not everyone, but just the two students might be um, inviting you to check out the course and, and get curious about you know, what we're going to be doing and ask questions. And so it's more uh, rather than I noticed that you haven't uh, checked in on the course. So it's also a tone and tenor, you know, kind of thing. Another cue might be, you know, a late submission and a quietness. It's nudging. It's, it's virtual nudging. And I have to be careful that it's not micromanaging them either. You know, that autonomy of the learner, yet you're creating an environment where there are certain set of expectations. It's an excellent question, and I want to say a lot of intuition comes into it, and strategies born out of experience just blended with the who that I am in trying to, to do these things. So I'd be, I guess I'd be watching for, for cues, and a semester like I'm having right now, it's, it's cues and 
zillions of different directions um, and different type of cues. There's a lot of things that are going on in these students' lives. You know, we talk about attract at the beginning of our conversation. We talk about bringing more students in and you know why that is happening because they can do it in you know for the abundance of reasons that we're able to to do that. But that these students still have other lives and they work, and so that that. Um, when I had to change my syllabus to read that you can expect 18 to 20 hours of effort in this course because it's a seven and a half week course. And then I looked at the, uh, that student's registration for the semester. Uh, it's another you know, gauge of insight into these having a more intimate, I think, knowledge of the students in our matriculating in our programs that for some students it's like, how in the heck are they going to have time to breathe? Um, if, if my seven and a half week course and they're taking another seven and a half week course and then they're layering a practicum course across that and they work full time. The burnout mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, right. we, you know, so, so part of that, the humaneness, both to the faculty member, but to the learner, but not to do it on the cheap. You know, not to cut out the quality. I didn't want to give up, for example, that that curriculum project. Yeah. So I have one more question about, um, you know, you as a nurse educator building courses that are about curriculum development and course design. How has this experience influenced some of the topics that you put um, focus on or any of the skills that you're focusing on? Has it has it influenced any of that in any way or have you found yourself emphasizing certain aspects after this experience in converting courses? Doing the conversion work, the redesign work has influenced or, or had me hone in for, uh, on certain things in teaching students about curriculum. I think the answer is yes. It has influenced because I am keenly tuned in too. So part of it is that uh, I won't call it an out of body experience because I'm very much in my body. But when I'm teaching, it's like, am I teaching to the tenets of curriculum development that I'm teaching? So when I talk about alignment, when I talk about the alignment, uh, big, more systems oriented from um, university mission, vision, values to academic unit to program and the, how all that lives together very dynamically, am I doing that? Pay attention to it. Can't talk about alignment and leveling and not have a pretty crisp uh, overview page on my, in my learning management system where it's very clear that things are linked I, you know, to, my, to my course learning outcome, my module learning objectives are there and it's, it's readily evident that there is alignment right there. So thank you for the opportunity to, um, to share my experience. I really appreciate your organic approach to accelerated course design. And I would like to go ahead and thank our panel of designers. Thank you, Jeanette and Celia, for joining us today and contributing to this fantastic conversation. And if you, our audience, would like to share your tips for developing and teaching accelerated courses, then please reach out to us on Twitter or by email. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as an in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website, 
at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Well, I can way. imagine those emojis being an engagement strategy too. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, they're certainly fun for me to, to go about picking out the ones I can and can't use, you know, in all of that. But um, yeah.